everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Or Else. As always, my name is Amanda Alexander, and I'm going to be your host during today's episode interviewing Ron Stiver, the president of System Clinical Services at IU Health. A little bit about Ron. He went to DePauw and graduated in 1996. He then received his MBA from Duke in 2001, starting out at Eli Lilly for his first job. Afterwards, he worked under the governor, Mitch Daniels, for quite a while and then came to IU Health. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as we learn a little bit more about his career path and IU Health today as a business. Ron Cyber, I serve as president of System Clinical Services here at IU Health. Born and raised in Indianapolis, went to college at DePaul University, out in Greencastle. And from DePaul, went to uh, Eli Lilly and was at Lilly for about 10 years uh, in a variety of capacities finance, uh, business development strategy. Went back and got my MBA during that time frame for a couple of years. Um, and then came back into sales, sales management roles, and a marketing role uh, before I went to go work for Governor Daniels. Uh, first serving as Commissioner of Department of Workforce Development, then as Commissioner of Bureau of Motor Vehicles. I always say I, I, you know, I got to live every young Hoosier's dream growing up. I got to lead the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Yeah. <laughs> now, no one dreams of that, but, uh, but actually ended up having a blast doing that. So, so worked for Governor Daniels for four years, basically his first term, and then joined at the time Clarion, which then became IU Health. The first job out of college is always a mile marker, whether it be a great, good, or negative experience. I wanted to know a little bit more about Ron's first few years at Eli Lilly, what roles he was in, and the things he learned. It's a pillar uh, of the community. In fact, um, both of my grandmothers had stints at Eli Lilly. Oh, wow. Um, you know, both on the packaging plans, and, and one retired. Uh, she ran across as we moved homes her retirement medal. Uh, just within the past week, too. So it was a great experience. Uh, I joined Lilly coming directly out of DePaul, went to what I call more the general management type of track there. So uh, first role was an internal auditing of all purposes, which isn't financial statement auditing, but more internal controls and process. And that ended up being a great experience because it was a series of three-week engagements. And, you know, I spent three weeks at the French affiliate, uh, three weeks at the Brazilian affiliate, looked at manufacturing, looked at sales and marketing, um, and Lily was really great at investing in their people, uh, developing them, uh, giving them chances to, to rotate every couple of years and grow. And so I really got to see the entire value chain again. Um, internal auditing then went to um, business development strategy, strategy for our diabetes and growth disorders, or Lily's diabetes and growth disorder group. Uh, and then Lily had a program in which they sponsored people to go back to graduate school and so I went back and got my MBA during that time frame still technically an employee but went down to the FICO School of Business at uh, Duke which was great I can talk about that and then uh, came back into a sales stint because if you're going to be in general management they really want you to have um, a, uh, a rotation through sales and sales management and so learned a lot in that role and then um, finished in marketing uh, management. So I was continually impressed at just the talent of the people uh, across Lilly and again their focus really on development of their people. Like many young professionals, getting an MBA or a master's degree in a specific field is common. Ron mentioned his pursuing graduate school at Duke where he benefited more than just in the classroom. 
Uh, it was great. I mean, um, for several reasons. First and foremost, I met my wife there, so that's a pretty good return on investment itself. So Catherine was from uh, Michigan, did her undergrad at U of M, and uh, we met down at Duke. Um, met some lifelong friends who I, you know, a handful I just got together with uh, earlier this summer. Uh, got to see a national championship uh, in basketball with Coach great. K while I was there, and it was really a couple of years of growth, not only in the classroom with some great professors, which was fun, learning a lot from colleagues, and then just really thinking a lot about, um, you know, what did I want to do uh, moving forward, too. And so that's probably where I even started thinking about us in public service. Um, spent a lot of time trying to deepen my faith during that time frame, too. So it was really just a great couple of years of personal growth in many ways. But his learning and personal growth didn't stop at graduate school. Soon after that, he started work in the Public Service Division under Governor Mitch Daniels, specifically writing policy and also with the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. So I always had a little bit of the public service bug, and actually I met um, then Mitch Daniels, who worked at Lilly. So I was at Lilly. Um, Mitch was there as well and met him. Um, not in depth, but had a couple of interactions with him. And so um, when he decided to run for governor, I said, oh, well, I'll do some policy, just write policy papers in the evenings and the weekends. And so I was writing policy papers on things like daylight savings time and uh, education um, policies and workforce policies and things of that nature. And as I began doing that, all of a sudden I started taking my vacation working on uh, that type of policy development of the things and really be begin to get engaged and was drawn to, to Mitch's message of um, really trying to improve things, be proactive and reform. And so when he was elected, myself and a few others um, received a paid leave from Lilly to work on the transition team, which is not uncommon. Lilly does that often with changes in gubernatorial, mayoral, or even presidential elections. So that was an intense four weeks of helping, you know, uh, prepare transition plans for Governor Daniels and his administration to come in. You know, when I went and did that, I still th thought I was going to go back to Lilly, but really um, caught the bug and wanted to be part of the team. And so when I told uh, my colleagues at Lilly I was leaving, I think some of them thought I needed to be on some of our medications. Uh, but it, I, I loved my time in public service. I learned a bunch from Governor Daniels, um, who again was uh, very proactive and talked a lot about, look, if we're going to make errors, let them be of commission, not omission, meaning let's be proactive in trying to improve things. If we're going to make an error there, we, we, can, we can take that. Uh, we can um, you know, learn from that, and that's acceptable. Uh, but if we're on our heels just afraid to make a change for doing something wrong, that's not the type of administration uh, he wanted to have. Also, he was very focused on trying to improve issues that affected everyday Hoosiers' lives. So had a very pragmatic approach um, to governing and trying to improve how government worked for uh, the taxpayer. And so, you know, I learned a lot during that time in workforce development. I learned a lot about uh, human capital development and our skills gap. Um, we can talk at length about that. And then um, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, uh, to be honest with you, when that position came open, and there had been a series of rotating commissioners over several, several years. Uh, predating Governor Daniels. Um, I said I would do it, but I went in as more of a loyal soldier. You know, I don't know that anybody has running the BMV on their career plan, right? Um, and so I said, yeah, I'll do it. Um, and then I tell you, I end up loving it. 
And, and here's why, if you think about the BMV, in many ways, it's the most business-like function of state government. You have your retail outlet, you have your supply chain and logistics channels, you can price your channel. Um, and that's really how we went about trying to improve it, trying to drive a lot of transactions online, uh, fixing the logistics and supply chain, so the mailing of plates, registrations, all of those things, beginning to price our channels, so price it um, more cost-effectively for consumers to go do the transactions online, move those volumes out of the branch, focus on the customer experience in the branch, um, and really focus on uh, changing the culture there too, and so it was an incredibly fulfilling experience in the end. In my mind, when I think of government work and policy, I think of slow moving, like ice cream melting on the sidewalk and making a trail slow. And I was curious to know if that preconceived notion was true or not. I would say quite the opposite under Governor Daniels, because I think he, he one, he came from the private sector and really came with the pen of trying to improve things and form things and basically you know the 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 first day of the administration which was my first day the clock started counting down and he wanted to try and make as much improvement as fast as he can sometimes to be honest with you faster than I think some people wanted mm-hmm. um, you know when you talked about pushing through daylight savings time I mean the, the, if you look at his first legislative agenda um, but it was um, you know, I did not experience that. Say for times where you had to get something through the General Assembly, at times they're, uh, you know, a little bit more methodical and for uh, reasons that are understandable. Um, I'll also say for me at that time in my career, uh, I was able to, to oversee a, a set of operations of size and scope that I probably would not have in the private sector at that point. Um, which again allowed me to, you know, I made some mistakes, which I learned from, and, and uh, under Governor Daniels' leadership was able to uh, accomplish a great deal too. As with every job and career, a person can learn a lot, but working for a government entity tends to bring so many more valuable and unique lessons with it than the normal business experience. During his time under Governor Daniels, Ron had some very specific takeaways to share. You know, I'll go back to, I mean, uh, a few things. One, I mean, because I still appreciate here of Governor Daniels of, hey, if we're going to make a mistake, let them be of commission, not omission, because it's, it is very easy, I don't care uh, where you are, to kind of succumb to the status quo. Um, because mm, what it, do you mean by that? By just, the, the, just stay with the way things are. If you tr- really try and make some change, I mean, change is not easy. Generally speaking, and it, we'll, we're in a, here at IU Health, we, uh, in some form or fashion, been uh, providing services for more than a century, and so even here, trying to change things, improve things, trying to disrupt from within, is a very challenging exercise. And at times, just the inherent forces of the status quo are hard to kind of push through, and so at times it can the tendency can be say, you know what, it's, let's just let it go, let's just ride with the status quo. Uh, because if things go wrong, then you know what are the consequences of that, and so forth. And and that's very true in government as well. And, and Governor Daniels was just dead set of trying to bring in uh, a team that was going to try and push through that status quo to make changes. Again, if you do that, you're going to make some mistakes. You are, and so having an organization where mistakes are tolerated, where you learn from them, you don't want to repeat the same mistake, but you want to learn from them. Uh, that's okay. In fact, I'll go back to my Lily experience, and I recall the CEO there. I was probably two years out of college, and this 
still um, sticks with me. It was a big decision that didn't pan out for Lily. Um, I'm going into the details with that, terribly pertinent. Um, and the CEO did a global broadcast at the time saying, hey, we, we, we made a bet on this. Here's the reason why we made this decision. Circumstances played out differently, thus this ended up not being a good investment, so we got to write down this big asset. But look, I'd rather us be an organization that makes, and I'm paraphrasing here, 100 decisions and gets 90 of them right than just making 10 decisions and gets all of them right. And there's, some, there's a common thread um, among that, and that is being able to make decisions, take informed risk, being okay with not all of them not always working out. Um, I think those are very valuable lessons I learned a little bit, Lily, and very much so uh, under Governor Daniels. What were one of those that um, you learned during your time at the government, so a project or something where you didn't get it quite right, but you were like, I'm glad that we had that to learn from it? Yeah, I was, I was, uh, very specifically, so y y it's, it's technical and not uh, very glamorous. It was actually the Department of Workforce Development where, you know, where I probably pushed too hard, to be honest with you. And so there the, the uh, agency had suffered chronic deficits, and so I was desperate of trying to improve that. And our unemployment insurance, one of the things the Department of Workforce Development does, a lot of workforce training programs, but also oversees the unemployment insurance program for the state. And um, that was, by most any measure, uh, inefficient compared to other states of how that was handled. And so one of the decisions I did was, so you have these adjudicators throughout the state that are adjudicating unemployment insurance claims. Not a terribly efficient way to do that because it's hard to balance load when you have these folks all over the state. So I decided to centralize that. And centralizing it probably moved too fast in the execution of that initiative. And so uh, for a while there, the claims backlog worsened worsened and I got to be on the local news channels and the newspaper for things that you don't want to be on. Now, right. ultimately we got through that. We had you know, performance that was on uh, par better than anyone else in the country, but that, that transition period uh, was painful and, and to a large degree probably could have been avoided with a little bit more careful planning. Having said that, the mistake at least was one of trying to be aggressive and improve things. And I learned something there too, though, is in, in doing so, though, you got to be careful that you don't want to outpace the bandwidth of your organization's ability to implement too, and you want to balance those tensions. But working for the governor didn't last forever. After a while, Ron decided to make the career change and work at Clarion, what is now IU Health. I basically served Governor Daniel's first term. So my first day was his first, uh, the day of his first inaugural. My last day was just after uh, his second inaugural. I thought about doing another uh, stint. Um, you know, during that time under Governor Daniel's, um, my wife and I had our first child. Uh, we became Riley parents. Uh, through some very intense experiences. And so when at the time Clarion, and Riley is part of IU Health, then Clarion came and approached me about this, it felt like, okay, this, this might be the right next step in my career. Mm -hmm. And so joined IU Health in January of 2009, again, just after Governor Daniel's second inaugural. And my first position was managing a lot of our external affairs, so marketing, government affairs, communications, outreach strategy, market research, those types of things. And one of our first big projects, or my first big projects, was one to, to um, build our marketing team, but then also to look at our branding. And okay. so... Uh, and had you ever done anything like that before? No, I I'd, I'd had marketing, had, had a, a marketing stint at Lilly, had a familiarity, again, because of Lilly's investment and in development and training. 
but also one of the things I learned at the state was, you know, how to better build teams and complement, you know, where I'm weak with strong skill sets and really trying to surround myself right. with people smarter than I am. <laughs> and so went about building that marketing team and we went and one of the big, big things we tackled was the rebranding of Clarion to IU Health, okay. which was um, a lengthy, exhaustive exercise, a lot of engagement from our board on that. Um, and so that was one of the first big projects that we did. And then we subsequently did our, our five-year strategy, which uh, um, just is, we're on the tail of that too, and the organization is looking at their next five-year strategy. When people hear the name IU Health, they really think of big hospitals. While that is a major portion of the organization, there are many others that help make up and run the operations outside of hospital services. I'll let Ron explain a little bit more. Statewide organization, people primarily think of us for our hospitals, but we have many other areas too. And as part of that five-year strategy, we, we thought about how should we be best organized moving forward and really involved uh, our operations, at least in what I call a business unit structure. And most of those business units are more geographically defined and anchored around a large hospital. The West Central region is anchored around our net hospital in Lafayette, includes some other services and some other hospitals. South Central region includes Bloomington Hospital from near where you're from, and um, part of that region is Paley Hospital, Bedford Hospital, and so forth. And so you have regions like that throughout the state, and then you have this thing called System Clinical Services, which is the division I lead. And that's um, not really defined by geography. Our services are provided throughout our footprint, sometimes beyond. Uh, in some cases, we're providing services to our hospitals. In, in other cases, we're providing our services to, to our hospitals and other hospitals. And so it's a collection of ambulatory service lines. So you have uh, surgery centers, urgent care, uh, home care, home hospice, um, a nutrition division, a home uh, pharmacy division transport. So we see the Lifeline helicopter, Lifeline ambulances, that's part of our division. Telehealth uh, is a growing area for us. Lab, and there are a handful of others in there too. And we created this division because we, one, in some cases we had multiple of these services operating within our organization. So we had multiple home health organizations within our system. And so we said, well, that's not terribly efficient. Let's consolidate the, those into one home health division so we can begin to realize some economies of scale and scope. Likewise, we saw that as more and more care migrates out of hospitals into ambulatory, so ambulatory or retail outpatient settings, into home settings, we need to have a really dedicated focus on building out these service lines, growing them, and realizing their full potential. Okay. And when they're attached to hospitals, Oftentimes they don't get as much of attention as they would otherwise. We said, let's develop a business unit around this, hire a president to oversee it, have that president hire a CFO, a head of HR, a head of marketing, and begin to build that out and have a dedicated focus around growing these. And so we have been kind of the high growth area uh, for the system, and part of our charge is to try and disrupt from within, too, if that makes sense. As you just heard, there are several branches, departments, and locations of IU Health throughout the state, all with different purposes. What I find amazing, and I hope I'm not the only one, is the fact that IU Health also needs to be a sustainable business. And yet, we have to remember that healthcare is a very different business. Healthcare is such a different industry if you look at the, just the third-party payer system mm -hmm. and 
so forth. Having said that, I mean, our, our, at the end of the day, our patient and our consumer, um, our, our target customers now, are there others that we look to serve? I mean, providers, other mm -hmm. hospitals, and so forth. But uh, in fact, across all of our service lines, we measure net promoter scores. So we're asking our patients or consumers to recommend, you know, what, what's their willingness to recommend on a zero to 10 scale to calculate those net promoter scores. We have programs in place to try and train uh, our staff so that we're uh, delivering an exceptional experience to our consumers. So for urgent care, for example, we identify what are those key touch points that really matter to someone walking through or looking to walk through one of our urgent care doors. And let's really make sure that we train to the language, um, the right behaviors and so forth to deliver that type of exception, exceptional experience. And so we've, you know, we have a director of customer experience who uh, I think may be visiting Zappos right now to see what she can learn from them. Uh, we've studied Chick-fil-A, to be honest with you, because I've always been impressed as a father of three boys with um, their friendly staff. And I mean, you, you go to Chick-fil-A and you, you say thank you. What do they say in return? My pleasure without exception. Uh, we've studied Norm, uh, Nordstrom, Amex. Um, so we're always trying to deliver that exceptional experience. You know, the reason why I say patient or consumer at times, you know, our goal is to try and keep someone out of the hospital and to provide care for them to improve their well-being too. So for that reason, I also use the word consumer at times. Also, consumer implies that they can go someplace else. And I think that's very important for us to have in mind that uh, we have to earn uh, the right to provide care to them. We want to deliver the highest quality care and exceptional service and high value. And yet, like any business, they too face challenges in providing the kind of service they offer to the Indiana population. Yeah, I think, well, one, you, you, you know, go, go to IU Health at large and take a look at our mission. We want to improve the health of Indiana. Having said that, you have some significant um, headwinds against that one. You look at the smoking rate of our population, it's far higher than it should be and much higher than you know, much of the rest of the nation. You look at our obesity rate, higher than it should be, higher than much of the rest of the nation. Uh, high infant mortality, and then you begin to dig into some of the social determinants of, of, of those things too. And so we really got to, if we're going to improve the health of Indiana, we had to get some of those core root causes. And those are not easy problems to fix, nor do they occur overnight. We didn't, um, you know, if you look at national health ratings, like Robert Woods Foundation is one that people often look at, and it, it takes a look at a host of factors, some of which I've mentioned, smoking, um, obesity, and so forth. We're in the 40s. Now, we didn't get to 40 overnight. We're not going to you know, get into the high 30s and 20s and so forth overnight, but we're determined to play our role in doing that. We can't do it alone. In some cases, we have to be the convener in local communities, but we we can have an impact and we take that role very seriously, but it's going to take it getting at some of those core root causes, social determinants if we're going to be successful. When you look at something like the smoking or the obesity rates, and to me that seems like an impossible thing to tackle, where do you guys even start to think about going sure. we're to think improve it? Yeah, we're thinking through that. That's a great question. We're thinking through that through our five-year strategy, and I would say you know, it differs. We have, um, so to really improve the health, we are focused on four areas. That doesn't mean we're not working on others, but four, we've said, hey, these are system-wide, board-approved, and that's 
uh, that's smoking, that's uh, obesity, um, infant mortality and behavioral health. So you, let's take smoking for instance, it's several layers. One, we have been a, a big, big advocate at the state house uh, to raise the tax uh, on cigarettes. That's proved to be one of the more efficacious means of sure. decreasing the smoking rate. And so we did not get it done this past session, but rest assured we will continue to be a big advocate along with our ch uh, state chamber and others. Um, but that's one big lever there too. Now we also offer um, you know, smoking cessation programming. We're looking to do that through our virtual telehealth capabilities as well. We have, we have a health plan as part of our system and we have some direct to employer relationships. We look to offer those services through there. So it's a combination of advocacy uh, of working with other key stakeholders and then providing care interventions ourselves. And I'd say while the nature of those may change, those big buckets are pretty consistent across these different areas. You have an advocacy role to play, um, you have a care provider role to play, uh, and then as an employer, we need to model the right things ourselves through the design of our benefits package and the offering of our programs to our team members. This far into the podcast, I hope you all can tell how enthusiastic Ron is about bettering the health of Indiana citizens and delivering services that help achieve that goal. One thing I learned in our conversation is that he is very passionate about population health, or pop health, as I'm told, is the slang. I, and I really have a passion for population health and community health, and we talked a little bit about community health too. So population health it's kind of a textbook definition is managing the clinical and financial risk for defined sets of populations. So you take a step back and you look at the healthcare industry. For years, actually decades, hospitals, health systems were paid on a cost plus model. So whatever it costs you, you add a little bit of that and that's what you get paid for. So not a big push to be terribly efficient. That migrated then, I think, in the early 90s to a thing called DRGs, Diagnostic Related Group Codes. Basically, it said you're going to be paid for the number of procedures you do. So if you do a procedure, you'll get paid for that procedure by a per-click rate, if you will, too. So in some cases, that created an incentive to, okay, do more procedures. Well, here, here's the thing with our, from a sales perspective, as the baby boomers age into retirement, age into Medicare, you know, we have to really get after our healthcare costs. And so uh, as a country, we spend a whole lot on healthcare and data would say that we don't get the impact uh, when looking at outcomes at our country versus other countries. And as a father of three and never able to take that public policy hat off uh, that I had when I worked for Governor Daniels, I look at this saying, hey, the healthcare costs cannot continue to grow at the pace they do and eat up the percentage of GDP that they do because it's crowding out other investment opportunities for things like education, infrastructure, security, all these other things. And so we really need to begin to, as a, as a society, tackle our healthcare costs and, and improve quality. And so with that, I think most others believe that too, the payment model is greatly changing. And so as a health system increasingly, we're beginning to take risk. So Medicare Advantage is a program in Medicare. So if I'm in Medicare, I can do kind of a traditional fee-for-service where I can sign up with a third-party payer, which is increasingly popular. That third-party pay, pay, uh, payer receives a premium per member per month, and that's it. That's what they get. And then they are responsible for managing the costs and the health of that Medicare enrollee. 
And so we, we do that as a, a health system. And so in that case, think of a defined set of people who, you know, government said, hey, here, we'll give you this much money, but that's all. That's all. Now you're responsible for managing it. And if you don't manage the cost well and it costs you more than what you've gotten, then you have to absorb that. Uh, if you're effective at it and you're able to manage the health and keep people out of the hospital and, and reduce costs, and that's less than the premium you got, then you get to use that to reinvest back into your mission. Uh, and that's going to be, I think, increasingly the way that we get paid. And I think it's a better alignment of incentives, too. I've mentioned before that IU Health is unique as a business, and just another aspect that makes it different is the speed at which technology is changing their world. For my final question, I asked Ron if there was anything developing in IU Health that he was excited about. The virtual telehealth, I mean, for years we've talked about this, uh, and I think really for a variety of factors we're beginning to see that the, the, the forever promise actually meet reality. And so it's done in several ways, you know. So right now our cardiologists in Bloomington will see um, cardiology patients in Paoli virtually uh, for follow-up appointments and so forth too, which is saving those uh, patients a long drive. And, and obviously this will never replace everything, but now with the improvement in devices, third-party devices like uh, stethoscopes and so forth, you can actually see certain things over the screen as if you were actually looking in someone's ear or in their eye or in their mouth. Uh, or today we have over 100 patients with congestive heart failure in their homes that will get on scales, put blood pressure cuffs on, that data will be transmitted just a few blocks from here into a command center where our nurses will take a look at that data and uh, do interventions if that data is showing that they need to be done. So for congestive heart failure, if they gain, you know, five pounds overnight, that probably means fluids building up. We need to change the medications because if we don't, they're going to end up in the emergency room. Uh, and so those are just a couple of many examples happening in that area. And I think, again, we're probably just scratching the surface. And you see the intersection of home and telehealth, and I think that's going to be a big uh, role, too. We, we are looking at the uh, uh, so-called hospital-in-the-home opportunities where we think, uh, you know, using some uh, virtual uh, health capabilities, some rapid supply chain capabilities, and the right uh, care models that we can provide care for patients that previously would have been in the hospital. We can provide that care in the home, reduce risk of infection, lower their costs, improve outcomes. And so I think, um, I mean, I get really excited about those opportunities. Yeah, that's insane. So it sounds like technology really is I mean, technology has always been a large part of, I think, healthcare and hospitals and things like that, but it's becoming even more so for this day and age. What do you think has contributed to the sudden, I say the sudden, or maybe the more popular definition of technology? Yeah, I think, um, well, I'd say it's, it's some of the forces we've talked about before, right? Of One, we have physician shortages in many of our, our geographic areas, especially in our rural areas. Um, and so we need to be able to still provide care, but do so in different ways. You have a different uh, consumer generation now, too. I mean, I always say many of our consumers' expectations are shaped by Amazon Prime, Zappos, Uber, and those expectations are beginning to spill over into healthcare, and so we need to be able to adapt to that. You know, having said that, technology is never the end. It is a means to the end. And, and so. Part of the challenging part is adapting 
historic clinical models to incorporate that technology. And that's not always easy. Our clinicians have provided great care. They've done it a certain way. And so, you know, working with them to evolve how they deliver care to incorporate some of these technologies uh, is easier said than done, but when it, when it is done, then it can, uh, is shown to prove, provide, again, great care at uh, lower cost and improve customer experience scores. Thanks for joining me yet again. Tune in next month for an interview with one of our own or alumni and listen to how he started his own business within a week of being let go from his previous job. Special thanks for today's episode goes to Joe Walters. Many thanks for helping coordinate schedules. Special thanks for today's music goes to Kilobot with Rosalie and Blue Dot Sessions with Vittoro and Rambling.